0: One thing people forget about the combat medic is the combat part. I'm no good as a medic if I can't survive on the battlefield. I'm no good to anyone if I can't get to the places that our wounded soldiers are at. So if they're taking a hill, I have to be able to take the hill. If they're going in the lowest valley, I got to be able to get to that valley. If, If the tactics that we use in the military, I don't know, and I can't survive on that battlefield, I'm no good to anybody.
1: Welcome to WarDocs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a first-hand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome Command Sergeant Major Diamond D. Huff to WarDocs. Sergeant Major Huff is a combat medic and holds a master's degree in leadership studies from the University of Texas at El Paso. He is deployed multiple times and currently serves as the Command Sergeant Major of the U.S. Army Medical Command. You can read his full bio at wardocspodcast.com. In this episode, you will learn about the critical roles combat medics play in supporting the military health system on and off the battlefield. Medics are the first war docs that casualties encounter during combat. And Command Sergeant Major Huff explains what is required for the best care to occur, even the most austere locations with limited resources. I'm your host, retired Army urologist, Doug Soderdahl. Today, we're privileged to welcome Command Sergeant Major Diamond D. Huff to Wardox. Sergeant Major, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start off by telling us a little bit about what brought you to the Army and what led you to become a combat medic?
0: Yeah, so... Interesting story, and I'm sure uh, many in our country probably will will share my story. Coming out of high school, I moved around with my parents. I went from Harlem, New York to Baltimore, Maryland. And while in Baltimore, Maryland, I went to high school. And coming out of high school, getting close to the end, I had very good parents, and they were urging me to do something. My mother wanted me to go to college right out of high school. I did not have the attention span or the discipline at the time. And so I messed around, went, went to uh, college for for a good year and, and realized that probably wasn't going to have the staying power that I needed at the time or the maturity to continue. And one day I was moving from a friend's house and I was catching the Metro and I walked past a recruiting statement. And it was this very dynamic young recruiter at the time. I can remember looking at him and, and he looked like me. He was talking with a with a Baltimore accent. And so he caught me, he said, hey, we started having a conversation. And he was like, have you ever thought about joining the Army? And I was like, absolutely not. He said, why not? And we had a, We had a nice little conversation. And his was the trick. He said, listen, you can go into the National Guard, work one week in a month, get some extra dollars. And this could be your job for the next. And you'll always have a little bit of money in your pocket and we'll pay for you. Your civilian education, if you ever want to go back and pursue it. So I thought about it, and I've always been an athlete. So I said, hey, tell me about this basic training. He said, you're going to run around, you get to fire weapons, and, and then we, can, we have these different MOSs. And so he started telling me the different MOSs I qualified for. He started talking about combat medic. Now, unbeknownst to me at the time, I'm a person who, I'm a people's person. I really care about people, the dynamics of people, the human dimension, all of it. I just love it. I didn't know that at the time. But when he started explaining a combat medic saving lives, it was very appealing to me. So I said, you know what? I'm going to check out this, this combat medic thing. And so he said, fine. So, And so I joined the National Guard to be a combat medic. I went to a basic training at Fort Jackson, and then I had a small break and went straight to AIT. At the time, it was called 91B Combat Medic. I actually joined the National Guard down at Fort Sam. Now, funny thing happened. So a lot of my misdirected energy while in high school, they would use terms like can't sit still, can't focus, too hyper. I was always associated with those terms. Well, I noticed in the military, they call stuff like that motivation, high speed. All the things i had heard in high school that were almost negative in the Army, they were all positive. And I was around all different people from all over the country. And they were fascinating to me. Going through basic training, meeting people at places that, to be quite frankly, at the time, I I would have an opinion about, but had never been, right? My family, very, very humble family. Origins are from, we came up very poor, so inner city. And so the the people I met in the Army, I was fascinated and I loved it. And so went to AIT, they treat you a little bit more like an adult. So had opportunities to go do different things. And I just loved it. Didn't realize it at the time. So finished AIT, came back to Baltimore and, and started working as a, a nursing assistant in a local, one of the local hospitals. And so I did that for about eight months. And, and I was falling back into the old ways of the city, doing the same thing, staying up all night, running with my same friends. And I, I just didn't see me doing anything different. And to be quite honest, every time I went to drill with the National Guard, I felt that motivation again. I was like, man. So I went to my father at the time and I said, hey, I think I want to go do the Army full time. And so at the time, I remember, and I don't remember specifically, but it was a process to get released from the National Guard to go active duty. I had to go explain to the commander, and hey, I really want to go. And I was supported by the chain of command. My National Guard chain of command was like, yeah, I think he'd be phenomenal as a full-time soldier. And so there I went. I went back. We got the paperwork and I shot off to go. And the first place they sent me was to Fort Polk, Louisiana. And for me, that might as well have been Mars. For a lot of people, that is Mars. (laughs) Hot, jungle. The, The largest facility there was a Walmart. And here I am coming from. Harlem, New York, and Baltimore,
1: Maryland. So it was, it was uh, to say it was a culture shock Was is an understatement. So let's talk about the, the job there. You finished your basic training about nine months before. You did AIT. You're ready to come in, hard-charging medic. Did you feel prepared to do what they were asking you to do? At, at the time, I did.
0: And that's a fascinating story. So I, I'll tell you this. The whole time at Fort Polk, so I was assigned to the, at the time it was called 15EVAC. And here's the thing, I came in right when Desert Storm was about to kick off. And so as a PFC, I was off to Desert Storm. Right now at the time, you couldn't have told me I wasn't fully prepared because I was everything a medic was supposed to be. Everything my team leaders told me, I was ready to do it. it. It wasn't until I got assigned from 15th to a surgical team out of Fort Bragg and we pushed forward doing Operation Desert Storm. And we started receiving casualties. And I remember going into the OR. We, we grabbed a casualty, we stabilized, it. had a senior medic with me. We put them in the back of an FLA. One of the units that attached with us was the 565th Ground Ambulance Company. And so we came back and I went into the OR. First time really in an OR. I went in and they started surgery. And the next thing I know, one of the OR techs was fanning me because I had passed out. <laughs> Did, didn't feel anything, didn't know it was coming. But next thing I know, I woke up on the floor that was step one shock that I needed to be different or do something different. Right. But still I'm a young soldier. I just, somebody told me, yeah, you had a vagal response. And, and I was like, Oh, okay, whatever that is, I need to fix that. Right. I didn't think about it.
1: At least you didn't become the next casualty for
0: that team. That's right. That's right. But still now at this time, I'm a young man and I'm full of energy. So, and at that time, people appreciated my energy. So anybody that they needed to push forward, I volunteered. Anybody that they, when it came to humping patients, we had two mass cows come in. We had to hump patients. We had to triage. I had really paid attention and I could do that. So my PAs appreciated me, right? They used to call me top doc. I was one of the youngest ones, but they said, Hey doc, come over here. But didn't know what I didn't know. So I'll fast forward. We get back from Desert Storm and we continue to do at that time, what was what we considered medical training. And then I got assigned, I got the opportunity to go in the MFO, multifocus and Observers, over in Egypt. And this was the first time that I made a promise to myself that I that I was going to be the best combat medic the Army had ever seen. So I went to the MFO, loved the assignment. Again, I'm, I'm doing things that I never would imagine in my life. I'm in Egypt, of all places, in Egypt. And so at the time, it was divided into two different areas, South Camp and North Camp, and you could serve at either one. And that's where I think my career really changed. So we I was working for an Australian doctor, and his NCIC was a former 18 Delta who had came back from serving as an 18 Delta back on the Medcom side.
1: So just for just for our audience,
0: what explain what an 18 Delta means. Okay, good. Great. So an 18 Delta is is a special forces medic, right? They have years of specialized training all things medical languages to be able to integrate around the world and, and help build capacity and in, in other countries so they are at the top of the scope of what we would call a non-licensed provider so e- extremely talented individuals in our army and they wear special forces tabs so if you can understand the term special forces 18 delta is a special forces man so he first of all he was dynamic he was professional he was dynamic he taught classes And this is way before the Army recognized it. He stood up an EMT course. So the same equivalent of EMT, EMT basic, emergency medical technician basic. He stood up a course there. And first of all, he trained me and got me qualified so that I could take the test. And this is way back in the early 90s before we ever recognized it in the Army as being part of our our MOS and trained me, stood up. I passed the test, I became an EMT and at the time that was a you know cream of crop. When you getting when you getting these credentials, uh, that says something about your competency as a combat medic. And maybe the entry I seen we actually stood up our own uh, little program there while we were in Egypt. And so this is when I knew uh, something was happening. We responded, we were sitting in South Camp and we got a call. Our Medevac company got a call and we were responding to an accident that had happened in the Sinai. And so of course he grabs me we hop on the back of uh, old Huey, you know, helicopter, and we fly out to the Millen Desert. And we get there and we land. A bulldozer had its forks up and, and it was nighttime. And at the time, the people that lived there didn't use headlights. They had what we call jingle lights all over their vehicles. So they really drove without lights. And the, the dozer fork had went through the side of the bus and decapitated. Like, yeah, absolutely. A bunch of people. And so when I arrived, we had been drilled in our head, was the scene safe? And then we would we would triage and we would respond. And since he was a senior medic, he gave directions. So we were doing triage and we finally got to the point where he's ready to start treating. And he asked me to go take C-spine control of one of the patients. And basically that means I, I go to the head of the patient, I put my hands in, I make sure the head and neck is not moving around. Well, when, when I grabbed the head, thinking it was still attached to the body. It was being held on by not very much. And at the time, again, a complete, and you know, I'm I'm, I'm pouring out my heart to you right now, a complete visceral response. I threw up everywhere. I just, I just threw up my, my body. Again, I always tell people I didn't feel bad. I didn't feel nervous. I, I was ready to execute. I had been taught how to do an assessment so much that I was ready to do but I tried assessment. But, but when I when I touched it, smelled it, and looked at it, my body just responded. After that, in myself to myself, now I I believe he told me because we we do an after action review on everything. He said I did well, but I will tell you, as we went from patient to patient trying to treat the patients and call things in, that was the first time I I wished I knew more. I wished I practiced more. I wished I was better prepared. Right. I, I wish there was scenarios where in a peacetime environment, I could reproduce that smell, that textile feeling of touching that flesh, seeing, seeing bodies destroyed so that when I had to do it on the objective for real, that I would be better prepared. And I can remember telling myself after that, that every credential, qualification, class, you name it. I was gonna do everything in my power to pursue it and just become what we call doc. I really wanted to be doc. And the other thing that dawned on me was that we have a phenomenal medical center from what we call from actions on objective or point of injury all the way back to what we call our role four, which is sitting in a fixed facility, right? Some of our med- medical centers, some of our med our hospitals. But it dawned on me that our doctors are not at point of injury with me. I would be doc. So the first person besides a a lay's person or a first responder who may have no medical training, the first time a patient got some medical training, it was going to be me. And their life probably would depend on how well I was trained and how well I reacted. So it dawned on me. And at that time, I was I was a young E5 promotable, which means that I was I was being prepared to take the next rank and it became serious to me. And to be quite honest, up until that point in my military career, I was just, I was letting things happen to me. I was happy with where I was, but I was I was just letting things happen. I was being a good soldier, right place, right time, right uniform, with the right attitude. It wasn't a profession to me yet. Wearing this cloth was not a profession to me yet. I was just doing stuff. But it was that point where when I went back, I can remember thinking to myself and having discussions to people with people where, I could feel myself changing. I could feel this becoming a profession to me where I wanted to be the best. And that changed the way I proceeded for the rest of my career. My next duty assignment after that was Fort Bragg, and and that laid the foundation for the
1: rest of my career. So let's talk a little bit about that. So you you deployed Desert Storm, Desert Shield, and you figured this could happen again. I could still be in the military when we are called again to do this kind of thing. Now we have maybe 10 years of relative peace, and then the world changes. And it really changed, I'm sure, at Fort Bragg. So 9-11 comes, and everything's different. How did that day affect you?
0: Yeah. So first of all, shock, awe, like everybody else, trying to figure out what we we were going to do, what role we would play. All that went through my mind. And at the time, it just so happened that at that time, I was teaching medics. I was at Sten Station at Fort Sam. I had come full circle. And now I was preparing to be a senior NCO and had the job of training the next generation of medics. And I, I will tell you that I took that job very seriously. And that was the time where we were going to change our entire POI, our program of instruction on how we were going to change the medics. We went from, from 91 Bravos to what is currently 68 whiskey. And with the six-day whiskey, that brought a civilian certification. So now, the, the EMT, and and by this time, I had furthered my training, and I wasn't just an EMTB anymore. I was an EMTP, which is a paramedic, right? All all done outside of the of the normal structure of the institutional army, right? Done organically at unit, and they sent me to instruct. And so I had I had served for Fort Bragg all the way from ninety four to two thousand, and many different deployments, other than war, to different continents, teaching medicine, practicing medicine, practicing trauma, and during that time frame with those different assignments, I, I had really caught my groove of being. If you'd asked me at that time, I would have told you there there is nobody better at trauma than I was at that time. Point of injury trauma, I was your guy, and so. Now I go to Fort Sam and I'm teaching medics and we're changing the POI. We realized we needed something a little different. As medicine continues to evolve, we must evolve with it if we're going to stay relevant. And so the Army said, hey, all right, we're going to we're going to add this EMT certification into our POI. And so you're going to train these medics. They're going to learn what we need them to learn as, as the United States Army. Plus, we're going to add this other qualification on so they can sustain better because that was the real problem back when I came in the Army, there was no deliberate process to sustaining the combat medic. So depending on wherever you went in the Army, you you got different levels of opportunities to be proficient. So the Army kind of came in and said, hey, we're gonna give it this certification that has to be sustained Army-wide. The part that after teaching on the podium down at Fort Sam, we realized that, hey, we kind of like the land dominant force and we need these medics to be able to understand ground combat. So at Fort Sam, there's another post not too far away called Camp Bullis, And I was given the job at that time to stand up the, the field training exercise portion of 6 to Eight Whiskey, where basically after we taught them the skills, the culminating event is we took them out to the field environment and we put some rigor and changed the conditions of which they would demonstrate to us that they had learned what we were trying to teach them in the didactic portion. And so I love that job because I got to put stress on medics. I used all my experience from from all my different types of deployments and, and included that into the POI for that for that tactical portion. And, and I think we did a great job at producing combat medics for our army. And so leaving there, as we know, the war just carried on. So I, I'm getting promoted, I'm fast forwarding. I, I leave Fort Sam. And I end up in Germany the first time. And one of the things that happened there, I was assigned as a first sergeant to one of our our only forward deployed combat support hospital at the time. It was the 212th. And during the time, peak of the war, we get the mission of responding to the earthquake in Pakistan. Right, There was a tremendous natural disaster that happened in Pakistan and, and our unit with less than a month notice, was called upon to to respond to that. And I will tell you, that was some of the best learning I've had to this point in the Army. Being able to take an entire hospital, pack it up, and move it to another country in a month, establish it, and then start receiving patients. And at the time, we saw over 10,000 patients. So a, a lot of people, you you put that in perspective, this is over a couple months in an environment that we had to not only practice our wartime skills, security, intel, you name it, all culminating at the same time, see patients on a volume that I hadn't previously seen before. And so the learning that took place in there, now being a first sergeant, pretty senior position in our Army for enlisted soldiers, and watching us, watching all the medical professionals, uh, nurses, doctors medics, technicians all come together to establish that hospital and then see those patients and then do it in a manner that's consistent with what we say is medical
1: excellence was phenomenal. The lessons learned from that were phenomenal. Yeah, that's one of the things when you're kind of put in that situation, that teamwork really starts to happen because you know that you're really in it together. And so everybody looks at each other and say, look, we do this together. And, and it sounds like it was a great experience now did you have the opportunity to deploy to southwest asia during oef and oif yep
0: absolutely I leaving that first on position i left and went to fort campbell 101st airborne division and during that time didn't even have an opportunity to unpack so two weeks in fort bragg was taking the mission in afghanistan and they needed augmentees. And, and since I guess somebody must have looked at my record and said, hey, this guy has spent almost 11 years at Fort Bragg. He's he's primed for it. And so I was grabbed from there, sent to Fort Bragg, Division Special Troop Battalion. We deployed. And at the time, we were made into a task force, Task Force Cincinnati. And at the time, this is actually a pretty funny story. So by the new unit not knowing me well, because I'm just getting there, I integrate in. We're deploying right now. I'm a senior master sergeant, post-force sergeant. And so the task force sergeant major at the time was giving out assignments. Who's going to do what? Who's going to do what? And he turns. He goes down the line. He turns to me. And he says, all right, and you're going to be uh, personal security detachment NCYC. I'm a good soldier. Roger that. Airborne. And and we move out. And we're establishing. So we get established in there. We're, we're in Bagram. Um, that's where the headquarters was out of. We run in different missions for Bargham and we we get uh, a detail to take Task Force Commander to Kabul, and it was going to be a large ceremony that was going on. And at the time, it was a green zone, so to go to the ceremony, no weapons. So if you think about you in a war zone, and somebody says we're going to take your weapons, first of all, that's unnerving, right? Second of, all, you you're in charge of the personal security attachment for we, we, had, we had two primaries and six what we call gun trucks, which was up armament Humvees with 50 cows on them. And I'm in charge of this team. And prior to that, we did different kind of training and bargain. We had all kind of exceptional training where I was able to do and just keep the team ready. And we had been out, we had been out on different missions. So we kind of understood the, the techniques and the tactics we were going to use when doing this, but you know fortunately up until this point we never had to really use them. So we, we get into this engagement and we're all sitting in the stands and we're watching a big ceremony. And the Afghan national troops are sitting in a ceremony. And all of a sudden, you could see somebody coming from the West was walking in artillery on them. And it looked it looked like it was mortar fire, something small, but it started hitting. And so you could see the security police, and actually I think it was their, their special operators from Afghan, start moving in the direction of the fire. So everybody stayed calm. Like I said, we were under this little half tinfoil building, right? It was very thin. But we were sitting outdoors. It was a nice day, hot. We're watching the ceremony. We're in the green zone. So they they go that way. And we had got used to every now and then somebody were dropping a mortar, shooting, throwing in artillery. It started going this way. This was a little different because as they move that way and we like, okay, they're gonna take care of it. A few seconds later, they're they're running back the other way. And when your team is running, that's never a good sign. And so uh, we sit in there and we still calm. Everybody's still calm. And we're still trying to have have the ceremony taking place. But now everybody in stand is getting nervous. And I have the principal sitting next to me because I'm the senior guy in the PSD. And we only were allowed to take one more person. So it was me and one more Sergeant First Class. And it was our two principals, which was Task Force Commander and Task Force Command Sergeant Major. So next thing you know, we started getting direct fire. And... It's hitting this little tin roof and it's cutting through that tin roof like it wasn't even there. So now slight mayhem breaks loose and everybody is ducking, getting low, trying to move out. So I I tell the commander to grab my grab back my uniform, we're gonna make a line and we we duck walking to get out the back. At the same time, I'm calling in our gun trucks, telling that we're taking fire, and I need to get them, get the, the gun trucks here. And so well, we started coordinating the, the, the gun trucks. And the funny thing about soldiers, and, I, and I, I don't know what to call it, but for the situation to be so dangerous, being able to respond effectively is an adrenaline rush. You get pumped off of it where well, you should be scared, or it doesn't make sense that you're not scared somebody's actually trying to kill you. But the opposite happens you come alive, your senses are peaked. And so we're moving, and we had to cross this open area. That was taken effective small arms fire, and so we hide behind some things. They're coming in, and I'm calling in the, the, the gun trucks to get here. They're right outside the green zone, and they're trying to get in. And and then, if you can imagine, the first Humvee comes off this small little hump. I can I can hear them coming. Chaos is now chaos. Oh, by the way, everything went completely crazy at this point. Everybody's running. People are screaming. Everyone's trying to get away. It's all kind of, it's mortars and direct um, fire coming in. And so one of the gun trucks comes up over this little berm. And up-armored Humvee is a pretty heavy vehicle. And I will tell you, it it got some air. All four wheels had left the ground. That's how fast our team was coming. Came down off the berm and one truck got in between us and the fire. So we were able to get the principals in. And at the same time, I'm thinking of the next steps. I'm trying my best to focus and, and block out that it's mayhem and somebody's trying to shoot me because I know the next thing has to happen. And the fire was coming from a small clay two-story building. And so I turned the attention of the 50 cows on that building. I said, hey, you know, we got contact. I can't remember if it was left or right at the time, but I described where the contact was coming from and I told the gunners to turn on it. And if, if you've never seen 50 cows open up, you can imagine three or four 50 cows aimed at the same thing they just collapsed the whole top of the building. It, it was it was something to see. And it must have been effective because we stopped receiving the direct gunfire. Now, the mortars were still coming, but once we got in Humvees, we felt comfortable. Got in Humvees, we used the TTPs we had practiced to, to get our principals out of there, and we finally got back to Bargham. Here's the point of the story, something you just remember your whole life as a soldier. So we went back, we didn't think about it, and the first thing that I will always do, build, pull the team together and say, hey, we're going to do an AAR. So pull the team together, we have AR. A little bit later, it was, it was, the sun was starting to go down and I got word, I can't remember who from, but they said, Hey, task force commander wants to see you. Now, even though I'm the PSD, we never just sat and talked to the commander. You were at war, commander's super busy doing things, Hi, by, hey, hop in the vehicle, sir, are we going here? And to be quite frank, a lot of times, the PSD at the time was wasn't used solely for the commander there was other principals and senior officers that we would use to take back and forth to different places so it was rare that we had him in most of the time he went by air right so this was one of the few times he was with us and it was just so happens that's when we get engaged and so I got called and in Afghanistan he had his own little what we call a hooch little place to live and sitting on the back he was out there and he had some cigars and he came over he said yeah come on over here and it was him the sergeant major and so he's like have a cigar with us he said that was that was outstanding work out there. It was it was good. It was just this, this this. And so one of the things I had forgot that I had did. So when people started getting hit and we were trying to move the principal out, I was talking on the radio and he was talking about casualties. On the radio, it was asking about casualties and I was relaying, communicating back and forth. We weren't taking any casualties. This, 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 this. So we got back. I was talking about it. if we took casualties, how we were going to set up a casualty collection point point. this, this, this. So while the sergeant major was talking to me, he said, yeah, that was good work out there today. We were doing this, we were doing this, we were doing this. And he said, hey, and you know your medical stuff, too. That's pretty good. And this is the sergeant major, the task force sergeant major. And, I, and we laugh about this to this day because he's he's long retired, but we still stay in touch. He says, man, you know some medical stuff, too. And so I paused for a second. I was like, yeah, everyone, sergeant major. He said, where'd you learn all that? I said, I'm a medic. And he was, they did not know this whole time that I was a medic. He's like, are you kidding me? My personal security, a medic is in charge? And at the time, I was being rated as 11 Zudo. And, And here's my point to that. One thing people forget about the combat medic is the combat part. I'm no good as a medic if I can't survive on the battlefield. I'm no good to anyone if I can't get to the places that our wounded soldiers are at. So if they're taking a hill, I have to be able to take the hill. If they're going in the lowest valley, I got to be able to get to that valley. If if the tactics that we use in the military, I don't know, and I can't survive on that battlefield, I'm no good to anybody. And so the whole time, he didn't know I was a medic. And when he found out I was a medic, he was even more fascinated with the fact that I was a medic and and how I was behaving at the time in theater. And and I've always held that as a badge of honor, that I had this uh, infantry guy who didn't even know I wasn't an infantry guy. And so that was, that was culminating for me from where I started vomiting when I touched blood and guts to the point where now I can take effective fire, I, I can have mortars walking in on me, and I can keep a calm head and be able to execute my duties under those conditions. And that's what I strive for every combat medic to be able to do, to be able to conserve our fighting strength, to take care of our wounded in any environment, in any situation. For me, we have to be the best
1: of the best when it comes to soldiery. So let's let's talk a little bit about you were at the Amed Center in school, teaching these medics and getting them certified as EMT basic. When they went and deployed to OIF OEF, did you feel that they had enough skills to do what was asked of them, or should we be training them to do something different or training them more along the paramedic side or anything else?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So. As our philosophy and the environment changes, and when I say environment, I mean the world, to where you, you talk about Afghanistan, you talk about Iraq, they, they weren't near peers. Okay, so the amount of casualties um, were relatively low compared to World War One, World War II, right? Now, can't even compare. Well, as, as we look at the world and how it's changing, I don't think it's if, I think it's when, that one day we're going to be called upon, and this time we may be fighting somebody who's much more capable of fighting back. And we term that now large scale combat operations, right? Let's go. And when we get into that environment, we, we're gonna be denied freedom of maneuver, whether it's in air or on ground. And so, what one of the things that really helped us, and by all measures, Army medicine, military medicine, over the last 15, 20 years of combat has outperformed anybody's expectations. We are up in the 90s in survivability, right? Once we get somebody off that X and get them back to row three, our medical professionals are phenomenal at what they do, right? So then you ask yourself, if we're at 90, then where's the 10%? Because our ultimate goal is, is zero preventable death, right? That's what we want. We want zero preventable deaths. So if you're still alive when I touch you, I want you to stay alive, right? And so then where are we losing? Well, I, I will tell you, if you ask me, we were very... I'm fortunate to be able to skip roles of care because we dominated the air. We could call in a medevac bird and get them there in no time, and and pick up a patient from the X and get them back to role three. Well, if we fight a near peer, we're not going to have that. So, being able to hold a patient on the X longer is is, is going to be a skill set that's required to save lives. And again, I go back to the point: it, it takes a like a long time to to make a doc, right? Gonna if you're gonna make a medical doctor, that's that's years of education, years of schooling, and they don't come a dime a dozen. So we have to, to be effective, rely on physician extenders. And that's what the combat medic is. I'm a physician extender. I'm doc at the point of injury. And so then my skill set is gonna have to increase. Now, a lot of people, this will be controversial for some, but I'm gonna say it anyway, because I'm the Army's top combat medic right now. So here's my opinion to be able to meet the demand of our Army to close that gap on what we like to call prolonged field care, where I can hold a patient on an X longer, I'm going to need to increase my baseline competencies. I just am. I'm going to have to be able to do more things, practice it and, and know it. And not just that, but if you if you look forward, we do a lot of other things and a lot of other missions besides all our kinetic war. So last last 18 months has shown us things. Just responding to COVID, just just being able to to work here in our own country, our country and most other countries recognize credentialing. Here's where it gets controversial. So I want to I want to try to be as clear as I can. I don't believe that the United States military should necessarily train to a civilian standard because that's nothing like military medicine. There's nothing like combat trauma. Right? It's, it's we can get close. Unfortunately, we have some places that we can get close, but it's not the same. So I I don't prescribe to that. I have to have or train to a civilian competency. I think we train to what we need. We develop our POI, our program of instructions to what we need on the battlefield. However, I believe we're intelligent enough to make that so that our soldiers have the opportunity to challenge and maintain civilian certifications. So somebody would say, well, why, Sergeant Major? As we respond to, to different types of environments, to include our own, I, we, we're a country that recognizes credentials. And so it's always complex and a struggle to explain to someone what a combat medic does if I try to get them to go work in a civilian hospital. Or respond on our own homeland and want them to be able to work to the highest level of their skill set because people don't understand it. I say, hey, this is a combat medic. And they go, uh, what can he do? I'm like, you can do anything. We, we, we're trauma kings and queens. we ready to do it. And they go, uh, push the certification. And that's just not helpful. If I'm able to say, hey, this is combat medic. And you say, what do you do? I say, hey, we're trauma kings and queens. Well, we don't understand what they mean. Uh, okay, well, we also certified as paramedics. They go, oh, okay, yeah, you can do all of this. The paramedic is the gold standard for pre-hospital care. It really is. No, no one can really deny that. If you you go look around, when you talk about pre-hospital care at the non-provider level, what you're talking about is a paramedic. So I believe as we continue to grow in military medicine, we must keep that in mind. And I truly believe that to answer what we need to do, the baseline competency of our medics needs to be that of a paramedic. Baseline, baseline competency. And then uh, to be honest with you, I can prove it. We have different types of medics in the Army. We recently spoke about one to 18 Delta. It's pretty, pretty specific group for, for a special operation mission and team. But we also have another special operation medic, and it's called a Whiskey One, SOCOM's medic, right? ATP, Advanced Tactical Practitioner. And guess what their baseline competency is? Paramedic. And I, I would suggest to you in the last 15 years, those Whiskey Ones assigned to our Ranger regiments and special operations have, have proven themselves to be some of the best in the world at trauma, right? So we have a way. Now we just have to get to that way.
1: Yeah, and I think that they drive a little bit about what happens in the civilian world too. And they see what happens on the battlefield. And they say, hey, those folks at the tip of the spear can provide, they can provide blood. They can do things that you know normally would say, oh, wait, we got to wait till they get to the hospital. But if they're out there for 24, 48 hours, there's no hospital. And yep. it was interesting, we talked to a guest who is talking about some really interesting new novel things for hemorrhage control. And so we all know the tourniquet has been a you know major thing, but sometimes you have that truncal hemorrhage that you can't put a tourniquet on in the abdomen. And he's looking at some self-expanding foam that if you get shot in the liver or shot somewhere, this stuff can be instilled and create pressure enough to give that person time enough to survive. But guess who's going to put that in? It's going, to, right. it's going to be the medic. They're going to make an incision. And however, this trocar that's a centimeter wide goes in, they're going to be doing it. And uh, if, if my son and daughter are on the battlefield and they need that, I want the medic to be able to do it. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. That That is, that is a point we are trying to drive home. I'm proud to say that here recently, the Sergeant General of the United States Army just endorsed and signed a memo that will, will allow us to train and be able to use whole blood at the point of injury. We've known forever uh, that a, that is a life-saving measure. And it just took us a little bit of time to get it to where uh, we are comfortable in understanding that that is a capability that our medics can absolutely be able to perform to save a life. And so we are moving in the right direction, I will tell you. right? Currently, we are moving in the right direction to be able to make sure that our, our medics are ready for the future battlefield.
1: So let's talk a little bit about your role as command sergeant major, and you've been command sergeant major at places like BAMC, Regional Health Command, Central, and now for Medcom. What is something as the senior enlisted non-commissioned officer in medicine in the Army, what keeps you up at night? Are we prepared for what's coming next? Because you, you mentioned it a little bit before, we're watching what's going on in Ukraine and Russia and China and it's not going to be the same war that we fought in Afghanistan, in Iraq. It's going to be near peer. So what is it that as a senior leader that you're most concerned about preparing for that?
0: Yeah. So first, I'll start by saying this. I would not have stayed in the United States Army if I didn't think this was a phenomenal organization. I'm a long way from that, that young man who lack discipline didn't know what he wanted to do in life and couldn't focus i'm way beyond that now the army has given me given me opportunities to basically do whatever i wanted to do and there was nothing nothing that i thought of that would make me more happier than exactly what i'm doing right now i, I love the fact that what i get to do is about people one honorable profession one serving our nation and then my my entire, job is of making people ready, getting people ready, giving people opportunities. We have a tremendous amount of talent in our Army, and, and most of the time we need to just open the doors of opportunity. And, and so I like to start there. And the two things that keep me up at night is two things. One, we're we're so good, and, and I don't mean this in a, a narcissistic way, but because we are actually, the medical professionals Army, very good at what we do. I'm not sure if we're ready for a time where no matter what we do, there's going to be a ton of casualties. I don't think we're used to seeing that. I don't think we're used to not being able to save everybody. And in the next war, especially if it's large scale, we might not be able to do that, no matter how hard we try. And so being psychologically prepared for that, that, that worries me, number one. And, and to be quite frank, for our whole nation, right? And so then what do I do about it? So the only thing I know to do, because we can't anticipate where it's going to happen, we really can't anticipate who it's going to happen with, we can't even anticipate the weapons that are going to be used to attack this. What I do know is that it's going to require people to be there. So the thing I want to focus on is the, the hardest, most realistic training possible. And that's where the, the us as medical professionals being able to make sure we utilize everybody on our team. So if you were asked me today, if some of those organizations, what I saw, I would say It was an underutilization of the enlisted technician skill set, especially when it came to the combat men. When we get inside our fixed facilities is where most of the learning happens. We have the tendency to be risk adverse from allowing some of our technicians to work at the highest scope of their practice, right? And and that's not going to help us when we have to do it for real. I, I would rather you know what I was capable of in peacetime where we can control the conditions than having me out there by myself and, and we don't know. One of the things I like to tell all the commanders is don't be looking up at the medic you didn't have time to train. And so what keeps me up is that, that we don't wait to the last second to
1: understand that we're going to need our medics to be their best. We really are. Because yeah, I, I was thinking when you talked about the story of that bulldozer and you're a young medic and you're seeing some horrific stuff for the first time. And how do we prepare people for that? And I totally agree with your point of train as you fight, because what you don't want to do is have someone who's just taking blood pressures and checking people in at the ophthalmology clinic somewhere now is on the battlefield and is taking care of a critically injured person, a soldier, and just they've never seen it before. So what can we do about that?
0: Well, so so part of it is, uh, and I always like to I always like to make sure I, I, I look in the mirror first, and I turn to my own teammate. Some of them is having phenomenal teammates, our doctors that serve in these facilities, be able to have great discussions with them, and 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 since I'm the senior medic in the army now, I, I do have a platform to be able to do that. And I, I would tell you, uh, sometimes we just have to remind them. So we we work under the licensures of our docs. That's how it works, and so. I can do anything that the doctor feel comfortable and allow me doing, that they've taught me and seen me do. That's really how it works. So making sure that our, our medical professionals, our licensed professionals, understand that and understand exactly what it means to train a medic. And, and to your point, reminding them that, hey, doc, if you want to get this patient in some sort of condition where you actually can save their life, it would behoove you to make sure I'm as trained as I can be. because if if they if they die of wounds before they ever get to you, then, then you you're combat ineffective as well as I'm combat ineffective. So getting our license providers to be able to say, hey, let, I'm gonna go ahead and invest in this technician, this soldier, this combat medic. I'm gonna make sure they they represent me forward of where I'm at. And, and that's the that's the way I like to present it to them. I like to look them right in the face, say, hey Doc, I'm you forward. So uh, if you if you want me to be the best of the best, then then right here, right now, help me practice be the best of the best. And when we do that, we have great results and it's been proven. And, And it's a fun fact. Here's a fun fact. First of all, I always like to say this because we get into a discussion where we worried about having some kind of sentinel event or event where we we, and I always hear this term, put my licensure on the line. I came into this job and I looked. Was there ever a time? That because of the actions of a medic inside our facilities or outside of facilities where any licensed provider ever removed. And that answer is an absolute no, it never has happened. So sometimes I, I think we we look for the boogeyman that ain't there, right? So we just got to get past those narratives and, and be able to get back to understanding what our profession is. And like I said, and to be quite honest, which I think is fortunate that, that we can come become complacent. I think that's fortunate because that means we're not at war all the time. But I always like to caution us that it's it's not if. History has shown it's not if, it's when. And so we we can't get complacent. We we got to understand that any time we could be called upon to save lives on a battlefield, and we all should be ready for that. And so that, that's the first part. The second part is being able to remind and describe to our Army senior leadership through our actions, what army medicine means to them. We, we got to make sure, and they'll say it. Our war fighters, I'll use this term, our maneuver guys, our fires guys, those guys are ferocious fighters. They they go straight. They, they do things that sometimes I'd be like, yeah, I don't know if I could. Tank on tank combat, artillery raining in, that's not for the faint of heart. And our rangers, our special operations, kicking indoors, going to places, they are ferocious fighters. And if you talk to them, they are because they have an expectation to live. If they get hit, they rely on us. They say, yeah, we know y'all going to be there. And so sometimes I have to remind them that that takes practice. I would like to think we were superheroes and click our heels and we show up, snatch them off the battlefield and, and take them back and do surgery. It's not the case. We we have to be prepared for that crucible. We have to be prepared to be there with them. And that takes training. So I don't, I, I would, anybody listen to this. If, if, Whoever works in a fixed facility, I would caution us to remember that's that's not necessarily going to be the playing platform that's going to achieve the desired outcome of saving lives. It's it, it definitely going to help, but I got to get them there first. And so that's there's three roles in front of that role four that has to be effective for that patient to ever make it back to role four. And all those other roles are in the thick of it. We, we're no longer going to be on the linear battlefield. You know, it's going to be asymmetric, multi-domain operations. We're going to get it from everywhere. And we have to be trained and ready to fight on that battlefield. So if you're a doc sitting in a fixed facility, you're going to have to do your best to make sure while you're actually working, because that's what we do in those fixed facilities, we live fire every day because we have patients coming through our doors. We have beneficiaries. We have our, our service members. So we we have to be competent. We have to be good. But at the same time, in the back of our mind, we have to realize that we're part of an MHS, Military Health Center, with a capital M. And that M means we have to do things different to be ready. And I just hope we all
1: remember that. So that's some great advice for our licensed providers. Let's say we've got PFC Huff listening to this podcast. And he's interested in what he should be doing to take care of his career and save lives on the battlefield what advice would you give to that junior enlisted soldier who is not so far out of ait
0: and i always say this this is not just a catchline i really believe it and and i'll i'll say i really believe it because it was me right and like i said the way people saw me from from my early civilian life to my early military life was totally different and i hadn't changed it was what was being valued when I came in army and here's what's valued as a PFC be at the right place at the right time in the right uniform with the right attitude and have some fun right so if I'm talking to a PFC that's what I'm going to tell them don't make things too serious too early go through your AIT get to your first duty station and be in have fun and learn mode right because because you'll it'll it'll develop it really will and I don't want PFCs overthinking it I don't want them coming in and put too much pressure on us. I think one of the things that's so unique about our Army is that we're actually a system that's built up to understand that those junior to us are going to replace us and we have an obligation to take care of them and prepare them, right? That's phenomenal for organization. Most of the time, if you ask me, is dog-eat-dog, right? we we all scrapping for the same things. In the Army, you don't have to do that. So that PFC right now, I don't want them to overthink and put too much pressure on them. I want them to develop some life skills. And, and enjoy the Army for that first term. And, and if, if I'm talking specifically to medics, make sure every opportunity you get to either soldier or what I call Medicaid, which is practice medicine, you do that. You do that and you learn. You find you a good doc, good PA, who wants to invest, who wants to teach you, and you pay attention and you learn. You take pride in being good at that and And I think, as they continue to grow in our army, they will they will then soon see themselves and decide what they're going to do.
1: So if your family unearths this podcast fifty hundred years from now, what is something that you'd want to tell them about your career in military medicine?
0: Phenomenal. I got so lucky in in not knowing what I wanted to do in life, but yet picking the right thing. I've always thought about, hey, what are the cool moss would I have been And one or two may pop up. But then when I lay them out, none would have been better for me than being a combat medic. And here's why. As I've matured, I've, I've really gotten to a point where I understand that all my professional happiness has been uh, derived from service, right? And like I was saying to you in the beginning, when I talked to the recruiter, I didn't, I didn't know that was me. I didn't know I was a person that takes pleasure in service, uh, takes pleasure to seeing other people succeed and being part of their success. The Army has given me that opportunity to help young men and women throughout my career achieve what they wanted to be. I, there are so many enlisted, talented soldiers who come to me and they say, "I want to be a nurse." And the Army has programs that will pay for them, enable them to go be a registered nurse, and I've helped them achieve that. We even have a program, and I don't know anywhere else that had this that takes an enlisted soldier, preps them to go to med school, and then turn out to be a doctor. and And I've sent so many soldiers to that school where now they come back and now. In our army, they outranked me. They were my former soldier and now they're doctors. And when I see them, they they picking me up, bear hugging me, love me to death to this day, and like telling everybody, oh, this has got to push me, made me go. That has always driven me. And then I have soldiers who said, Sergeant Major, I don't want no parts of that. I want to grow up to be a command sergeant major. I want to push troops, play in the woods, and teach my whole career, just like you. And I've been able to point them in the right direction. So Being able to do that, if someone was to ask me what I want to remember, I truly want them to remember that one phenomenal job with a tremendous amount of opportunities for whatever you want to be in the Army. If you want to be in the medical profession, the United States Army has it for you. You just got to decide what it is and, and, and get with someone who cares to point you in the right direction, and then you go after it. Second thing I want to know that I love our Army. I love our country. I love the people. That that serve in our army truly, and having the diversity in our army, and meeting people from all over our country, and then traveling all over the world to meet people, I cannot see myself doing anything else. And then the last thing is, and and it's because of how much I truly care about people. So I I'll, I'll end the answer with this: I didn't know how much that I care about people until I became a combat medic and spent my career either leading training, helping people, or actually performing life-saving measures. Those two things were were the thing that I love to do the most. So I want people to know that Command Sergeant Major Huff cares about our people and wants to make sure I provide opportunities for our people so we remain a nice, strong army to
1: deter anyone from ever thinking about taking away our freedoms. We've been speaking with Command Sergeant Major Diamond D. Huff on WarDocs Podcast. Sergeant Major, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us, and thank you for your service to this nation.
0: Thank you for having us, and thank you for starting WarDocs. It's phenomenal. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of WarDocs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, WarDocs has you covered. Spread the word.